wonderful to see you. It's incredible to be back. Um, two weeks ago, I got married to this beautiful girl, and she's now my wife. It's, uh, it's a miracle, I tell you. It's a miracle. Oh. And she's always this pretty. I thought maybe now I'd start to see that she's maybe behind the curtain. She's always this pretty. It's amazing, a miracle. Oh, wonderful. It's incredible. So I'm still on cloud nine, so if you excuse me for, for being a little bit uh, smiley and happy-go-lucky at the moment, I will be for a while longer, hopefully for the rest of my life, hopefully. Keep the cooking up, and I will be. <laughs> but it's wonderful to be here. But this morning, I've got something burning inside of me, and uh, I said to Fiona, I don't know if whether it's, it is or whether it's her cooking or whether it is the fact that I'm now... Uh, a married man, marriage itself, or maybe it's just that I'm wearing jewelry for the first time in my life. Something inside of me is shifting, and uh, maybe it's a new perspective, or maybe it's just the Holy Spirit talking. I'd like to go for the last option, but I believe God has a word for, He's been speaking to me, and I believe it's something for us. So I pray that this morning you would embrace it, um, and I hope that with the, the happy atmosphere, I'm going to go hard this morning. That's right, I'm going to go strong, I'm going to be tough. If that's all right, we're going to dig into the Word. The Word is going to talk to us. It's going to shape us. Is that all right? So have I got the permission of everyone? Just checking. You've said go ahead, so I'm not going to back away. Thank you very much. Let's turn in our Bibles. John chapter 2. <clears throat> we're going to be reading from verse 13. John chapter 2, verse 13. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. Written by a man named John. Believe it or not. Are you all there? Verse 13. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. But let's read together. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration. So Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifices. He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove out the sheep and cattle scattered the money changers' coins over the floor, and turned over the t their tables. Then going over to the people who sold doves, he told them, Get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered the prophecy from the scriptures, Passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders demanded, What are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. What? they exclaimed. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you can rebuild it in three days? But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this, and they believed both the scriptures and what Jesus had said. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We come humbly before it. We submit ourselves before your word this morning. We thank you for your lavish goodness to us as we worshiped and adored you. We pray that our worship would continue as we keep our hearts open for you to speak and change us. We also would hasten to add, thank you for the Sharks winning last night with a bonus point. You are very kind. Amen. Sorry, just uh, I've been praying for many years, so you would forgive me. Great. I want to give you some background to the story. I bet, as I said, John chapter 2, you thought, wedding at Cana, definitely. No, I skipped that one. But let me give you a background. Jesus has just been at a wedding. Euphoria has filled his disciples, disciples there with him, his family, some of his followers were there. They were at the wedding, and weddings, Jewish weddings, 
in particular are quite lavish affairs. I don't know if you've ever been to one. I've never. But I do know they do a lot of singing, a lot of that dancing that goes quicker and quicker and quicker. You know the kind? No? Do you want me to act show? No, no. Another time. Another time. But you know, any, any party with Jewish music is bound to be a hit, I tell you. So it was a lavish affair. Party was going. People, spirits were high. After my wedding, I struggled to come. I was just so excited. I was like, for, for the next week and a half, I was just buzzing. Could hardly sleep with the adrenaline and excitement. That filled the people in their heart. They were so excited. Jesus and the disciples. But something even more exciting had happened. Jesus has shown his hand. He had, he had, for the first time, he said, for the first time, he showed his glory by turning water into wine. He was the original party starter. They were excited. They saw suddenly illusions of, of grandeur filled the disciples and the family members and the followers. They were so excited. They're like, oh my word, I knew I was right. I turned away. I left everything to follow him. And he's shown me. He has got power. Oh, here we go. And automatically, as soon as they saw this happen, all the gears started shifting. The disciples started jostling. They started getting excited. They got in line because here we go. The show is about to start, and we're in, we've got the prime seats for what God is about to do. They were excited. Such, such, the conversation started having as parents of these boys started rushing up and saying, Jesus, Jesus, uh, we're very excited. Could my son sit on your left, and could he sit on your right? They start doing it. Jostling starts happening. As disciples start asking questions, are you about to restore the kingdom to us? Are you about to do it? Political aspirations get up in people's hearts as rich young rulers, political figures, come up and line up next to him and saying to him, uh, can, can, I, can you get behind our campaign, Jesus? Can I follow you and can, you, can I put your name on my campaign? Things start happening. Disciples asking questions. Who's the greatest, Jesus? Who's in the front of the queue with you here? And they start pushing and getting, trying to get in line. They're trying to see how we can use this Jesus to propel me forward. Very exciting times for the disciples. And what we find in John chapter 2 verse 13, it launches into this phrase. It says, at the time of the Jewish Passover, they went towards Jerusalem. Now scholars tell us that this road towards Jerusalem comes to a T-junction, a crossroads, if you will, where if you turn right, it leads all the way to the political hub of Jerusalem where the Romans have set up their political center. And the disciples, they had seen this water turn into wine and they were like, here we go. They behind them, marching to Pretoria, I mean Jerusalem, marching there, up there, going very excited, going, we're going there, Romans are going down and we'll be sitting on his right, he will be sitting on his left, we're about to rule and reign. Here we go. They get to this T-junction ready, determined to turn right, and Jesus turns left. Profound moment. He turns left and he turns not to the political center, but to the temple. He starts marching down that way. Disciples left scratching their heads a little bit. But then, wait up Jesus and try to play catch up and run after him. My proposal this morning is that I believe that many of us have bought into and manufactured a gospel that is no gospel at all. That there's something that we've made for ourselves to make ourselves feel better. We've seen Jesus show his hand and we say, I'm in on that. I want some little bit of that for myself. And try, we try to appropriate the gospel and force it into some mold that will work for me. We have expectations that if this, that, but this plus this plus the gospel equals wonderful success for me. And a lot of us are often scratching our heads when things don't go the way we thought. Because this gospel, we thought, was for ourselves. I tell you, some of us have just put a paint job on an old car. The engine is still the same. 
I believe that some of us are still walking the well-worn paths of addictions, of brokenness, of, of, of excuses, clinging to earthly pleasures, and we keep on turning right. The same old agendas. I want to tell you that I believe today, in the last couple of weeks, two weeks ago, Rory Dyer stood up here at the front and he preached saying, you have five minutes left. He says, teach us, O oh God, to number our days aright. The next week, Mark stands up and speaks about follow me. Follow Christ. Simple messages. Nothing profound, nothing new, but strong. I pray that we are hearing these words because we're at a crossroads, I believe, as a church. We've been brought to a T-junction as spouses, as mothers and fathers, and plainly as disciples of Jesus Christ. We've been brought to a T-junction where today we're going to have to start making decisions to turn left. I pray that this morning you turn left with me. This message is entitled Turn Left. And I want to say this morning, I pray that we turn away from insipid, banal, powerless, me-centered Christianity. As PJ Smythe once said, enough of this decaf, get another facial, herbal tea gospel. As A.W. Tozer put it, he said, it's time to throw down the white picket fences of domestication and pick up the danger-encircled path of obedience. I pray that we'll do that this morning. Are you guys ready? Everyone all right? Everyone ready to turn left? Turn to your left. Is this a hello? Good. And everyone on the right feels left out. Let's get back to our text. John chapter 2 starts, so they turn, he turns left, the disciples are playing catch-up, they go to the temple, it's about the time to celebrate the Passover, so Jerusalem is abuzz with religious activity. He gets to the temple, I'll set the scene, there are cattle, donkeys, there are doves everywhere. There are people from all over the region who have traveled by foot, or who are dusty, who've arrived for this big moment to celebrate the Passover. Their pockets are full with coins because they've come to pay their religious sacrifice to appease a God, to get their consciences cleared for another year, to get attached and make themselves feel a little bit better about their lives. They've all arrived. There's some jostling going on, the, and the Pharisees have been so kind. They've even set up and made it easy and convenient for people to get their conscience cleared. They've come and they've said, don't worry, you don't even have to do it. You can bring any animal. We'll check if they are blemished or unblemished here. And if they are blemished, don't worry, you can buy one of our own. We've got a whole range here. We've got a whole bookshelf in our thing of how to present a better sacrifice. Ten ways to do it. Sorry, sounds maybe too familiar. What happened? They made a whole industry out of this thing where they started even changing money. said, you can come with your foreign currency. You don't even have to do it away. You can do it. It's easy to come to God. It's so simple. Just come and we'll help you here. And they changed the money and they were making a bit of a profit, which no one was too sad about in the Pharisees' lineup. They were quite chuffed with that as well. And they walk into the scene and the disciples thought, well, maybe we're just here to pay our religious respects. Then we're going to head back into the political head hub of society. So they were about to get inside the queue. And yet again, Jesus ruined everything and turned left again. Instead of joining the queue, he did in a, I can imagine, in Gandalf, Lord of the Rings type fashion, flung those doors wide open and said, you shall not pass. No, I don't know if he said that. That's not in the scriptures. But I believe he walked in there and this incredible moment happened. Something so bizarre happens. Jesus, meek and mild, wrong. Jesus, with fire in his eyes, walks into the temple. Something very, very different. He bashes the door down and he fashions himself a whip. I said to Fiona this morning, where did he get the material from in such a quick instant? Chuck Norris has nothing on Jesus. 
I, I came prepared. I brought my own whip to this party. Wow. Jesus, I tell you, I think something needs to shift in our hearts because Jesus will not have his hair permed and curled by the church. Jesus will not sit in the corner and just quietly obey our command to say, when we, seek him, boy, come, heal, heal, as if he's some dog. I'm being strong here. Jesus will not sit back and just let the church use him for their own means and own gains when he's saying, I'm jealous for my glory. He says, zeal for my house consumes me. There's a passion in his heart for his glory. His chief end is his glory, and he will not be denied. I want to tell you, Terry Virgo stood in this pulpit and he said a line similar, I don't know where he said it, but he said, saying, when he received Jesus, he almost said to Jesus, or to the other idols in his house, idols move up, Jesus is joining the queue. I tell you, this Jesus I read about will not join the queue with your other idols. He'll not come slipping and try and slip by. He comes in to push things away. And what he does next, which startles everyone, as they all look with open mouths at this Jesus with a whip who is chasing donkeys, chaos reigns. Donkeys are fleeing out, um, going that way left. Cows are going right. He releases the doves. I can imagine doves flying to the windows. It's chaos. Poop raining everywhere. I'm just imagining. Allow me to go with this. There's chaos going, and Jesus then all of a sudden starts turning over the tables of their neatly piled shekels and denarius. There, all the coins are lined up. He's turning them over with fire in his eyes. Not this fluffy Jesus sitting on the side watching us and, and blessing us from a distance. He's turning tables over. Coins are going everywhere. Shout, they're so it's so bizarre, they don't even know what to do. And I want to say this sometimes. This is my thought here. I believe that sometimes Jesus comes into our lives and he wants to turn our tables over. He wants to come and turn the tables on us on our numb, religious, boring Christianity. He wants to turn the tables over on us. And sometimes I believe that some of us have got skewed theology that we are having our tables thrown over and then we are picking our tables back up and start lining our idols back up nicely and neatly and going, God, why are you letting Satan do this? Can I tell you, not all struggle or strife or brokenness is from Satan. I want to tell you that God is sovereign, and sometimes it's his greatest kindness to turn your table over. Sometimes in your brokenness, that is his greatest kindness to you, because he said, what profit does it for a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? Sometimes we are praying that God will give us the whole world, but in this process, we're losing our souls. He's saying, ah, some of you, I need to rip the world out of you, and it's going to be painful. And your tables are going to be messed up. I tell you, God says he's shaking what can be shaken. And only what, he, what can, cannot be shaken will remain. I tell you, it's God's greatest kindness to you sometimes. God is not impressed with token religion. I promise you that. He is not impressed with token religion. I think some of us have confused Father God with the Godfather. We think he's more the Godfather. That if I can pay my tithe, it's protection money. If I can come and attend some services, if I can come, or if I can smile and sing the songs right, hey, I've done well, done enough. God, you owe me almost, can we come to some sort of arrangement? As if it's like the Godfather. No, he's not your protection money. He's not there for you at the, in the slightest. You're not the center of his will. His glory is. It's quiet this morning. You cannot buy God off. God, he does not come with a new slogan saying, can we come to an arrangement? He says this. This is his proposal to you today. Follow me, come and die. 
That's what he's saying. It's not an argument. It's not a, a negotiation. He says, follow me, come and die. There's a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a famous man. I've talk, spoken about him before. A pastor in Nazi Germany. He was a man who had a nice, neat congregation. But as he saw the atrocities happening around him, he refused to turn right. Everything inside of him, all his colleagues, all his other pastors in the area, were kept turning right and turning a blind eye and carrying on with business as usual. But what happened inside of this man, he's a wild man, that he ended up even right, he ended up, he was part of an assassination attempt, failed assassination attempt on Hitler. Maybe I'm wrong, but don't pass this around, but I think that's the sort of pastor I want to be. <laughs> Just saying. I listen to these sort of people. And it wasn't because violence or something was inside of him. He even wrote a book. The one book he wrote was called, entitled, Come and Die. Because he said, this gospel is much bigger than my life. It's much bigger than my comforts, my pleasures, my needs. It's so simple. It's follow me, come and die. So simple, but it gives us, it'll cost us everything. His favorite hymn was a man written by a, name, by a na- man named Isaac Watt, who wrote the song, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And there's this profound line in the end, which he loved, was, it demands my life, my soul, my all. You might know Charles Wesley, the guy who wrote many famous hymns. He was reported saying, I'll give up every single hymn I've written to being able to pen that one line. That's what he said. Because there's something in the gospel, the heart of every man that longs to die for something. We long to give our lives to something, but we've been numbed, and religion sometimes cloaks us and numbs us and says, don't worry, everything's okay. You don't have to worry. I want to tell you, the story continues in John Chapter 2, and Jesus, he turns the tables over. And Jesus, who's never short a good a word or two, gets up and he starts yelling. Luke 19, the same recount of this story, says he used the words, You've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. Now, I want to tell you, this, this line, den of thieves, is so familiar to the Jewish audience because Jesus didn't make it up on the spur. He was quoting somebody. Look at Luke chapter 19, there's a little asterisk there, it says, Jeremiah 7. So he was quoting the great prophet Jeremiah, who all this, this religious audience study, they know Jeremiah's words well. It's from almost in our culture, if I stood up and I said, don't worry about a thing. Hey, you guys know, the lights went with that, sure. It's the sort of thing, I sing a line of a song, most of us will go, oh, we know the rest of it. I don't have to complete it. I know with the rest what comes. I know Bob Marley wrote it. I know the sort of feel. It's reggae type, laid back stuff. Some of us even remember that song. It's got some memories attached to it. Am I right? No, you know the sort of songs like that. It's almost an, in our culture, that sort of element. It's very exciting. In their culture, they were so ingrained with the prophet's words, Jeremiah. Jesus just had to quote one line. You turned my father's house into a den of thieves. They automatically knew the context around it. So what I did was went and read Jeremiah chapter 7. Go read it at home. I encourage you. We've got to do this. We've got to dig into the word together. Go read Jeremiah chapter 7. The whole context of Jeremiah, he was a prophet, and he was prophesying in an area called Babylon. The Israelites had been taken into captivity. They had been led into Babylon. Quick disclaimer, who led them into Babylon? The enemy, surely, Satan. No, go read Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1 says, The Lord handed the Israelites into the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar who led them into Babylon. Sometimes it's God's greatest kindness to turn over our tables. 
Just a thought. But they were led into captivity, and they were in Babylon. They were in brokenness. They weren't free as a people. And what was the Jewish response? Set up the temple. They set up a temple in Babylon and carried on with business as usual. No one protested. No one fought. They said, don't worry, it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be all right. See at the temple, so Jeremiah, this prophet, who was hated in his day, he was beaten and abused in his day. Anyone who ever speaks the truth often in a day is often pushed to the side. Come on, turn right. Stop trying to turn left. Everyone's going right. But Jeremiah stood up and he said in this thing around this, this phrase, you den of thieves, he says this two things. He says, don't be fooled and say that there is safety when there's no safety. He says, don't be fooled and say there's peace when there's no peace. He says, don't be fooled and say there will be no suffering. He said, don't be fooled. He says these strong words, Jeremiah says it. I want to tell you that Babylon was the shame and embarrassment of the Jewish people. Years on, they look on Babylon with shame in their heart that they did nothing. It's the embarrassment they look at it. We did nothing. I want to tell you, they were in captivity and they just kept turning right. Nobody turned left. They kept going right. They kept going right, doing the same thing over and over and never seeing freedom. My prayer this morning, what's been gripping me for a long time is, God, please may this not be my shame and my embarrassment. I watched the movie that won all the Oscars the other day, 12 Years a Slave, a harrowing story. I struggled to keep my eyes open. It was quite graphic. But the story is said in Alabama during the, the racial segregation where white people were buying slaves and abusing them and mistreating them and raping them and treating them as their own property. And my thought that grieved me in my heart, as, I, as tears rolled out of my eyes, I watched it, and I felt feeling I needed to repent, was what were the church doing during this time? I'll tell you what they were doing. Business as usual. They were turning right. But then what's even more scary for me, and forgive me if I'm stepping on horrible ground here, apartheid happened in our country. I know there were a few good men and a few good women who did stuff, but the majority of the church, what did they do? Business as usual. Turned right. Can I tell you what's even more scary for me? Xenophobia happened a few years ago. Literally five minutes from this church. Besides a few good men and women who did some things, what did the majority of the church do? Read the papers, shook our heads, sad. We did nothing. We carried on with business as usual. We turned right. We refused to turn left. What are we doing every day about poverty in our society? We look right. No one is turning left. What are we doing about the sex trafficking trade that's happening here? We just keep turning right. There's more slaves today than there have ever been in the world. 30 million sexual slaves. And the church? Continue with business as usual. I am scared to have my children one day in 20 years' time say, Dad, what did you do during that time? I kept preaching. I kept on just doing business as usual, taking up the tithes and offerings faithfully. The tables need to turn. I want to tell you there's a great cost to this gospel, but there's also a great reward. But I'll tell you the good, good news here, maybe the bad news for some of you. The great reward is not a promise of safety. The great reward is not a promise that you will not suffer. Some of us are desperately buying a book on how to overcome suffering. How to do this. I tell you the Bible. Do you know what the Bible says about it? In this world, you will have trouble. Guaranteed. Sign up. Yay. Paul said in Acts chapter 21, he said, In every city, 
great trial and jail and persecution and probably, probably death await me. That's the gospel I've bought into. But I think I've distorted it a little bit. Just, just saying. I look at Jesus. And Jesus seemed to always be trying to, we, we look at our preachers these days, preachers will stand up, not, I'm not making accusations, but it almost seems like we're trying to say, somebody says, listen, I, I feel like I need to come to Jesus. Oh, cool. Um, just say this little prayer, and that's it. And everything's fine. No, don't worry, you don't even have to change anything. It's okay, because we're just desperate for people to come in and look like we're successful. When I see Jesus, my model Stand up, and every sermon he preached seemed to be trying to convince people not to follow him. The guys come begging, Jesus want to follow you. He says, all right, but just know that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Point number one in my great evangelistic preach is, you will be homeless. Now let's do an altar call. Who wants to come to the... Uh, everyone walked away. He said, point number two is this. He said, you're going to... You, you guys said, well, let me just go. I'll do that, but let me just go bury my dad. No, let the dead bury their dead. Wow. Second point, you cannot even attend your father's funeral. Third point, God said, let me, let me follow you, Jesus. He says, but let me go say goodbye to my family. No, leave your family and follow me. And can I tell you what's scary is that I have even preached myself. So I'm saying, well, you know, Jesus actually, he was using hyperbole. He didn't actually mean that. You know, when he says blessed are the poor, he actually means poor in spirit. So we don't ever have to ever give anything away. Why can't we, I think it's time when I read the Bible, I look at my life, and I start trying to make my life, trying to fit my, no, the Bible must fit into my life. No, 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 it's the other way around. I read the word of God and something has to change. I can't keep turning right and forcing Jesus, come right. Don't go left, we're going this way. You will work out for me. Harsh words. Praise the truth. I want to tell you that the Bible tells us that the great reward is not no suffering or safety or to cry peace, peace when there's no peace. The great reward is God himself. I think we've confused us that the gospel is, a, we put ourselves into the gospel is great benefits for me. When the gospel is actually, the reward is him. But I can challenge you, my question is this, do you know him? I hope I'm kept up at night going, do, do we all know him? Francis Chan stood up at the front of his church and he wept. And he said, I don't know if half my congregation are going to heaven. I look at their lives, I don't see any fruit. I tell you, I killed fear of man years ago. It raises his head every now and again, but I chop it off. But I tell you, I am not in the game of wanting to be liked. I'm desperate for us, the church, to get to a crossroads and turn left. I'm desperate to change history. I'm desperate to come and die. I'm preaching to myself, but I pray that you pick up the words as well. I land with this thing. I'm reading a book at the moment by Malcolm Gladwell. He's written a book, a non-fiction book called David and Goliath, and a large chunk of it is around the 1950s, the racial segregation that was happening in Alabama. We know the story surrounding Martin Luther King. You may have heard of him, but you may not have heard of or may have heard of his sidekick, Fred Shuttlesworth. Anyone heard of him? He was a man who grew up, he was a pastor in the 1950s of a black church in America, in a most racially segregated place. And he was a pastor and doing his job nicely, neat and tidy. He was a good little preacher and people said, oh, he's doing so well and he's such a faithful uh, pastor doing the funerals and the weddings and great. But something inside of him was burning. 
as he said, how can I keep just doing this and keep straightening the tables in the temple where I look outside and blacks and whites are segregated. We're abused. There's no freedom for my people. We're in Babylon. So what Fred Shellsworth did was he stood up. He stood up on the 26th, on the 25th of, 25th of December, 1956, and he said, tomorrow I'm going to walk down this to the city center and get on the whites-only bus, and I'm going to ride it into town. That night, the Ku Klux Klan came and bombed his home. The whole street were in uproar. They were weeping. Police, whites and blacks were weeping because he was a love figure. And they couldn't believe this was the first onslaught of the, in the KKK in this area of that extreme. And they were weeping. And out of the wreckage, in almost a biblical fashion, came a voice. Because they thought he was dead. A voice came out and said, I'm not coming out naked. So they threw him a cloak. He put it on. He came out. And, and one of the white policemen wept and said, I know these men, Fred. I'm so sorry. I never thought they'd go this far. He said, please, please run. Run for your life. Please get out of here. They won't stop. And Fred said this, I was not saved to run. The next day, the people begged him, don't go on it. He stood before the bus and he said to them, they said, Fred, are you going to ride the bus for real? He said, hell yeah, I'm going to ride. I'm quoting. He said, hell yeah, I'm going to ride. And he said, today, I want to ask you, he says, men, step forward. Uh, boys, step back. Never short of a good tweet, this man. Fred moved on as he rode that, that, that bus into town. What happened was the next, the next couple of weeks later, he was just filled with this thing. He was refusing to turn right. He could go into a path. He could never turn back. He got his daughter, his own family, and enrolled her into John Phillips High School. No relation. Disclaimer. No relation to me. Which was a whites-only school. As he arrived there with his little daughter, men with brass knuckles, clubs, and chains greeted him. He got out the car and they knocked him down repeatedly as he ran for his life as white women swore at him. I won't quote that. That night as he came bad and bruised and he came out of the thing, he arrived at his church and John, he preached on his topic that night was forgiveness. He told his family, his daughter, his own daughter who'd seen him beaten up, said, we've got to forgive them. The next though, this happened, something inside of him is burning. He meets a man named Jim Farmer and he said, Jim, you've got to go meet Martin Luther King. He takes him to, the, to where Martin Luther King was speaking. They arrive at the doors of this hall that they're going to speak and a whole crowd of white men with confederate flags are there waiting to greet them and beat them as they, they start shaking the car as they arrive. Can you imagine the terror as he pulls in? They're shaking the car with angry faces, screaming, coke bottles raining down on them as they get out the car. What happens is this happened... Jim says, maybe let's go around the block again. Fred says, no, I'm getting out. Starts walking through this crowd. Beckons Jim Farmer to come with him. Jim hides behind him as they walk up the stairs, pushing everyone away and saying, let me pass, let me pass. He was arrested that night, and a policeman took him to jail. And as he was taken to jail, the policeman was goading him, calling him a monkey, calling him all these things, and said to him, why don't you say anything? Fred Charles was almost mockingly turned and said, because I love you, brother. That night he was banned from singing, banned from praying, banned from doing anything, so he took a nap. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Final story about this man was that he had a friend named Martin Luther King, who one day was making a great uh, oratory speech, and a 200-pound man came at him bearing knuckles and beating him up during a speech. Imagine now somebody stepping up and running at me, starting hitting me. All the left, all his aid, uh, the AIDS friends, all his aides and attendants came running to him and started pushing this man away from him and say, what? And holding him and trying to pull him away. And some punches started being thrown there. Martin Luther King became his assailant's protector, jumping in front of him and saying, stop it. 
and whispered as he held this man, whispered in his ear, saying, this is a fight you cannot win. Freedom will win out. So he whispered in his ear. And then he took this man, named, a man named Roy James, took him and introduced him to the crowd as if he was a surprise guest. And this man, Roy James, started to weep in Martin Luther King's embrace. I tell these stories because they're gripping my heart, because there's something bigger here. History is written by men who dare to dream. But more importantly than dreamers, history is written by men and women who dare to turn left when everything inside of them wants to turn right. I want to finish this morning by begging you, by pleading with you. I'm not beneath pleading that today you would turn left. For some of you, the simple step, you say, what is that? What does that even mean? For some of you, the simple step is to pick up your Bible and start to read it. Some of us men and women have said we're Christians, but we've never read the Word of God. This is His Word, His gift to us. Do you know Him? Get to know Him. Some of you, for you, that's the biggest thing, where every day you want to just turn on the TV, you have to turn it off to turn right, to turn left, you turn it off and you read your Word. For some of you, it's people who have been fought against community. You've not got involved in community. You said, I'm on my own, I'm going to do this way, this way, this way. Jesus is going to work this way for me. But what Jesus says is, community is on the left. Turn left. For some of you, that's the bravest thing you need to do, is submit your lives to other people. That will be the biggest shout of saying, I'm turning left today. Some of you have been carrying unforgiveness in your hearts for years, and it's justified. And it's made you hard, and you said, but Jesus, you know, this is, this is who I am. I'm an angry man. For some of you, today to turn left is to leave that there. Turn left, please. For some of you who are married, and I speak humbly, some of you have been interacting with your wives or your husbands in the same way. Every time there's a fight, you give them the silent treatment. Every time there's a disagreement, you walk out. You've turned right every time, every time. Today, I beg you, start making decisions that when there's a moment of chaos, when we're at a crossroads in our marriage, I will turn left. The narrow path. There's life there. I want to say I pray that some of us today, a fire will be lit in our heart. If you're angry with me, I pray that you would understand that the Holy, that's the Holy Spirit turning your tables over. If you're frustrated with me or you say, what does this young man know? I pray you would understand this is not just me. This is the Holy Spirit turning your tables over and making you uncomfortable. I pray that today some of us will become radical. I pray that history would know our names because we did not stand by when poverty, when brokenness, when rejection, when abuse was happening on our doorstep. I pray for some of us that looks like giving away a lot of our things. For some of us, that means starting to be very generous with our time. For some of us, and don't say, they say, oh, Gabe, that's just too radical. This is the gospel. Come and die. I'll leave it up to you to turn left. But I want to finish here. In John chapter 2, the last thought was this. The men yelled out, the Pharisees in their anger yelled up angrily to him and said, if, you, if this is who you, who you are, as you say you are, prove it to us. And many of you, many of us, including myself, have been holding God ransom for years. Prove it, God. If you want me to follow you, I will, but on my conditions. Prove it. God will not be held ransom by you and I. But in his incredible mercy, he answered with such wisdom, he stood up and said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it. And obviously the men reacted with natural eyes. So many of us react with natural eyes. You don't know my situation. They said, yelled out, we took 68 years of our toil and blood and sweat to build this thing. And, but Jesus was not asking natural questions. He was going deeper at their hearts and saying, I have come to die. 
I will die, destroy this temple, and I'll be raised to life in three days. So that all of you may be raised to life again, so that you can die with me. This thing is not a thing of effort or more striving or let's become more radical in ourselves at beating our chest. This is about coming and embracing his life and his death as our own and following our master. Teach us to number our days aright. As we hear your voice, God, saying, follow me. And let's turn left as a people. Let's pray. Before we pray, if any of you here this morning, you've never responded to this gospel of Jesus Christ. It might sound like harsh news. It is the greatest news in in the the world because it frees you from yourself. I want to respond to a God who frees me from myself. If you've never responded to that, I would would ask you to do the brave thing today. I would ask you right now just to stick up your hand as high as you can. Say, Jesus, I want to respond to you this morning. Thank you, sir. If there's others, can you please, I would love you just to right now, place to put your hand up in the air so I can pray for you. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Wonderful. Let's pray. We're going to pray together. We're all going to pray this. Father, I thank you for these people responding with their hands raised. I thank you, God, that this morning they are saying, Jesus, I deny today, I deny myself and pick up my cross and follow you. I pray today there's people who are making decisions in their heart to say, my life is not my own. It is yours, Jesus. Today, I believe, God, that there's a radicalness coming to us as we answer the call to your great salvation. When we see the pearl of such great price, we say, what more can I give but everything? I thank you, God, that you would save these people this morning. Save us from ourselves. Save us from our sins. And save us from turning right every time. I pray, God, there's a new course today set for these men and women as they raise their hands that they would turn left and never be the same. Thank you, Father. I pray also, Lord, for this church. I pray for our greatest days are ahead of us as we not become more clever, as we don't try and become more fancy or, more, or try and make this thing work for us better. I pray today, husbands and wives are deciding to turn left. I pray, God, in simple moments, there are radical moments happening right now. As this church, life changes, becomes a church that does not just walk by or does not continue with business as usual, but we turn left. Even though it may cost us our lives, we will turn left. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you birth a radicalness on every single one of us here, that we'll never be the same. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.